The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we live our lives governed by fictitious concepts. We say we're at the end of one year and starting a new one, but that's something that's just made up. There is no December turning to January in nature. And yet it's impossible to think of our lives as we understand them without that idea. An old year going out, a new year coming in, a fresh beginning, a marking of past and future. These are deeply engraved in our mind in the concept of a year. And so too with another metaphor, a chapter turning. At this time of year, we might try to understand an old year ending and a new one beginning. And that might in fact be the way we understand it. Ah, one chapter is complete. A new chapter is about to begin. It's a little strange when you think of it, that one man-made concoction can be used to explain another, but that's how deep these are. They don't feel artificial, they feel real. We all know what it's like to end one chapter and start the next. We all know what a chapter is. Or do we? Is a chapter something that's so ubiquitous and so essential, it has essentially become invisible. Can you define a chapter? How? By length? Well, we've all seen short chapters and long chapters, and we've seen books with lots of chapters and those with very few chapters or none at all. What is a chapter? Have books always had them? Where did they come from? What do they mean? What do they say about us as we turn our calendar from 2023 to 2024 and mentally turn from this year's chapter to the next? We talk to a historian who's written a book not only in chapters and of chapters, but on chapters. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. This is a vacation week here at the History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast, by the way. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Thank you for joining me. I am trying to, because this is a vacation week, I'm trying to give the interns some time. Oh boy, are the interns in bad shape. A little too much holiday celebrating for them. I overindulged them. I think a bakery nearby sells a dessert called a Noel Bouche, and they come in three flavors, vanilla cream, praline, and mocha. And I loaded up the studio with all three because that's how generous I am. I thought it would last us a month, and the interns plowed through all of them, went through a sugar rush where they trashed the Jack Wilson studio with what seemed like euphoria, maybe verging on hostility. And we wound up laughing and then dancing and then screaming and then weeping. It was one of the weirder Christmases I've had. In retrospect, I probably should have just given them one of those days off, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, or at least the 26th. Even the servants used to get Boxing Day off, but that's all hindsight now. They knew what they signed up for. Literature is important stuff. It does not wait. The history of literature is never-ending. So, they plowed through the Noel Bush. They are now sleeping off the night before, letting all that sugar invade their dreams. And I hear a few shouts every once in a while. It's disrupting the room where they sleep is truly disturbing. And so we will go straight to our interview. And then we'll do a My Last Book to round out our 2023. In the new year, we'll be back with Margaret Cavendish and Mike Palindrome and the Venerable Bede and Machiavelli and Virgil and guess what? Canausgard. And that is how you pronounce it, according to the Canausgard expert with whom I spoke Oh, 2024. Those episodes will all be good stuff. But today we have some good stuff too. Chapters. A history of the chapter. What a topic. How does one even begin to write a book well, such as this? A history of the chapter. Nicholas Dames is here to tell us. 
Okay, joining me now is Nicholas Dames, Professor of Humanities at Columbia University and Editor-in-Chief of Public Books. He's also written several books, including the one we're going to talk about today, The Chapter, A Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century. Nicholas Dames, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. So I'll confess that when I heard that you had written a book about chapters and how they came about, my first impulse was to think, well, maybe chapters were a byproduct of serialization, all those 18th and 19th century novels appearing in periodicals. And that becomes part of the story. But you actually go back a lot further and you go much deeper. So, But before we get to the actual history of chapters, let's get some conceptual framework concepts out of the way. How do you define a chapter? So I'm, I'm I'll give you two answers. In the first one, I've always been tempted to say that a chapter is anything that calls itself a chapter. Mm, but mm-hmm. my actual answer, I think, the, the more conceptually accurate one is that I, I think the line I have is that it's a segment of a book that is marked as such by the book itself. What that has to involve is two elements. Um, there has to be a unit, and there has to be some kind of mark or label, right? Like, a title is very common, but it, it's often just a number or sometimes a, a printer's device or mm. some kind of regular use of white space. So it involves two kinds of actions, which are obviously related, but in their own ways kind of distinct. You have to divide the text, and then you have to label somehow or mark the things you've divided. So that, you know that is two aspects to what's a kind of intertwined practice. And that's the way I tend to think about it, right? Mm-hmm. It is something the book has come with itself. Now, a reader can mark up a text and can divide it. But I think I'm going to, for my own purposes, call a chapter the thing that the book, and I'm, you know, it could be an author, it could be someone else involved in the production of the book, the way that the book has segmented itself for you. Right. Okay. So given that that gives a, a broad or a wide range of possible things that could be chapters, let's talk about what chapters in general might do for the reader. What do we, what uh, qualities can we attribute to them? I mean, one of them obviously is we would, we pause for some kind of break or we recognize yeah. some kind of break. What else might they yeah. do for a reader? Well, I, in some ways they provide a map of the text that you're about to read, right? And and they uh, give you a sense of you know what is going to be included, so uh, and, and where to find things. But I think also they can be ways of guiding your response, pulling you out of the story in order in order to you know either guide your response, let you know what is to come, let you know how you might adjust yourself to get ready for mm-hmm. what's to come, tell you what to look for. But I think the thing you just said is also really, really important. It, it's a way of aerating the text. Mm, mm-hmm. So it gives you a permission to pause or stop. And it therefore actually, I mean, I think that the consequence of this is that it provides an occasion to sort of align two different times, one of which would be the time of the text, like let's say the, the time of the story. And the other is your time. So those two things can kind of come into alignment. It, it gives you a rhythm. Yeah. And it also then gives you a way to think about how experience, any experience, I mean, even experiences we have in everyday life, can be divided into units, right? Into phases or stages or episodes. And and this is why, I mean, we still have this this metaphor we still use, and I, it continues to crop up when we talk about a chapter of our lives or something like that. Because the chapter is is a really dominant way of thinking about how experience itself gets chopped up, how things come to an end and then begin again. And that's a rhythm, and that's a rhythm that comes from our experiences of reading, being trained in a certain kind of rhythm. So I, I, I do think in some ways the chapter is a rhythmic device, mm-hmm. as well as a kind of, like I said, a kind of map or a capsule guide, or even maybe a kind of index of sorts. Right. And you can imagine that authors, you know, some might say, I want readers to settle in and to to sink back and kind of lose themselves on a sort of 
languid journey and have these long chapters, but I'll I'll give them breaks, but but there will be right. uh, a long time coming. Or you might have a Dan Brown who says, nope, it's going to yeah. be really short chapters. We're going to have cliffhangers. There's going to be, it'll be yeah. a sort of breathless rhythm and, and that'll match the content of the t- type of book he's writing. Right. And that rhythm is something that you can then sort of settle into in one way or another. You You know what to expect, but it's also a rhythm that could for whatever reason, then be sort of violated, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. a text that allows you or schools you into something that's a little bit more languid uh, or extensive can can throw you a curveball, right? And suddenly there is a cliffhanger, or suddenly there is a an extremely brief chapter, and there's some you know there's some great examples of violations of a rhythm that I I like to think about, but it is really fundamentally rhythmic. It teaches you how to parse your own reading out in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And the one thing that I think we haven't mentioned yet is it can give you a feeling of accomplishment. So you feel like, you know, as a reader, you're you're signing up for what might be a long stretch of time, but you feel like you're making progress. Like, oh, I've uh, or or maybe uh, I can just read to the end of the next chapter or if I make it, you know, um, I don't want to start a new chapter because I'm getting a little tired or something like that. It gives us this sort of. uh, relationship with the book. And a, and a relationship even with the author, sometimes mm-hmm. right, or an author figure, right? Um, right, right. The chapter breaks are places where there are different kinds of things one can do there. One, you know, chapter titles that sort of communicate outside the story to a reader or include things like epigraphs, which are ways mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. signaling certain things to a reader. So you're, it's a moment to occasion stepping outside of the experience. And it can establish almost this kind of uh, side intimacy between an author or a narrator and the reader that is operating on the margins of the story, or maybe not in the margins, but in the pauses, right? And mm-hmm. these little uh, rhythmic pause moments where you get to reestablish that intimacy. Mm. Okay, so where does the story begin? What are the earliest examples of chapters that you were able to identify? Well, I, I ended up having to go back a lot farther than I thought I would. And the earliest example I was able to find is a, a, a bronze tablet that was erected in uh, central Italy in the second century BC. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Tabula Bambina. And it's a tablet that set out a new law. And it was, it was essentially promulgating a new law and indicating what that law is, what the content of that law was. But the chapters on that tablet don't really look like the chapters we'd be familiar with from books, although they're not that far off. It mm. would have been, uh, the tablet indicates chapters by a essentially a chapter title, which is set off in the middle of a line by two little spaces on either side of the title. So they're visible from a distance, but there's not the kind of use of white space or numeration that we might be used to in books. But the form of those chapter titles is that form has lasted for a long, long time. It's a very familiar, like, grammatical form where it's the Latin day, which means, you know, about or concerning. And that gives you an indication of what the next segment is going to be about. And I mean, I was struck by the fact that, that chapters, therefore, exist outside of what we'd call books before they even migrate into books. Yeah. That's the earliest example I can find, but you can find other examples of chapters in what the, particularly in the ancient Roman world, would have been considered books, which are scrolls. And there they existed in a multiplicity of forms, but the primary thing really is the title, right? Like the title that interrupts the text to indicate what the next segment is going to be about. And those titles can occur in different ways. Sometimes they do come at the start of the unit. Sometimes they come in a list of their own at the start of the text almost like a kind of table of contents. Sometimes they even just occur as a kind of marginal mark at the edge of the text, a, a number, or sometimes even just a letter. And there's you know, there's a variety of instances of this, but I, you can say really that the chapter goes back as a technique of dividing text before the uh, first millennium CE, really, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think uh, at the origin of scrolls, even, I think that chapters are there from the, from the onset. Now, in those ancient works, do you see that as a something that's put in place by the author and, and at the service of the reader, or do you see the demands of book production or publication 
being part of the decision here. And I guess if we're talking about scrolls, for example, it might be, you know, our chapters lining up with the ends of the scrolls. And then you have a neat break there the way we currently might turn the page, for example. Right, right. So I mean, my first answer would be that it's it's a little of both, and it mm. depends on the text. Mm-hmm. Some of those ancient chapters could have been produced by authors. And one thing that tips us off to that is that the titles themselves become a lot more playful. It's almost like a, they're a series of sort of jokes about reader expectation or what's going to follow. Right. That can occur, but more often it seems like it's the demand, presumed demand of both book production and what the reader is supposed to expect. And that's because chapters in those ancient texts are really primarily associated with what we now call nonfiction. So informational texts like these almost quasi-encyclopedias that are collecting a lot of different kinds of knowledge about a particular topic, whether it's medicine or law or natural history, and something that, in other words, you're not supposed to be reading sequentially, where you come to it with some sort of expectation, like, I need to know this. Where is this thing in this massive text? And then you consult the list, right? You, the list of titles. So you know where to where to go. And so I guess in terms of what the demand is that's being satisfied there or what the problem is, it's something like information overload. There's a feeling that there's too much information to take in. So you need to find some way to kind of access that quickly. And therefore, you need a map of what a text is going to contain. And the chapter title and the list of chapter titles is that kind of map, right? It says, here's where to find this information. This is what this section is about. So it, it performs that locating function for you. But Mm. the weird thing about that, and you pointed to it, is that these were scrolls. And it's true that, you know, a chapter, there would be several chapters within a scroll, but chapters did tend to end when a scroll ended. But they're still an odd fit with scrolls, right? Because it's a lot harder in the scroll format to consult a list and see, all right, that's chapter 12 that I want to read. And then you you can't flip through a scroll the way you do a, a you know a codex a modern book, so it's it's still fairly clumsy. And I think this is why, although there are chapters in ancient scrolls, they they're not dominant. I mean, they're really associated with a very particular kind of text. And it isn't really until the scroll starts to vanish in ancient textual culture and be replaced by the codex by the the hinged book that we have then suddenly chapters sort of take off. And they take off because, it, in a way, the the technique of chaptering a text is much more amenable to the modern book, to the way you can locate things much more quickly by flipping through. Then suddenly chapters begin to populate all kinds of texts, much more than the these large informational texts from the sort of middle period of the Roman Empire. Right, chapters with their, their close companion the table of contents that's right that's right and they're they're very much associated i mean you you can't it's not until really recently that you pull apart the idea of chaptering from something like a table of contents mm. okay so let's talk about your book and your project so as you're looking through this i, I don't know how much of this you had in mind before you embarked upon the project but you're not just talking about them theoretically and kind of, you know, waxing eloquent about the beauty of chapters or something like that. You're actually doing some some analysis of how they've been treated throughout history. And how did you, did you measure or, or quantify the different ways chapters, you know, in a different period were used? Or do you, did you look at the, the most famous authors from a particular period and just study how they use chapters as kind of representative of their era? Or... Is there, you know, was there work that came before you that you could draw upon? Or how do you, how do you look at basically yeah. every book that's ever been written and figure out what, how the chapters are working in them? That was, that was a real problem. Is, you know, I, I felt at the start of the book that chapters are like the grains of sand on a beach. You know, where do you, where do you start yeah. to, to think about these things? So one thing I did, um, I mean, I suppose I went about it two ways. I, uh, I wanted to locate moments where we have some indication about how chapters were produced, either because we know something about the production of the text itself, or because we have 
different chaptering systems for the same text. So then what you can do is you can do this interesting thing is you can measure how those systems changed when you have something as sort of control to the experiment, right? You have the exact same text being divided up different ways over time. And that was why the book, you know, the, one of the earliest parts of my book is actually about uh, about the Bible and specifically the the Christian Gospels, because we do have lots of evidence of different editions of those Gospels from the 3rd century up to the 13th, where they were chaptered differently. Mm. And so you then get to see like a different kind of imagination of what a chapter is and how that mutates over time. The other way I think I went about it, and actually is quantitative, is I counted. And what I primarily counted were words. I, it's a, you know, mm-hmm. it's, this isn't a particularly like computationally uh, complicated task, but I wanted to get a sense, some pretty accurate numerical sense of how chapters in particular genres change and how they change in terms of size. Because it seemed to me that size or length, or if you want to call it like duration, that really matters as far as what a chapter is. Because the chapter is organizing time. So you want to know what the sense of time is, and therefore you want to have a sense of a sort of a measurement of uh, what counts as time. Word counts felt to me like the most stable uh, way to count that. So in doing that, I mean, one pattern that emerged, and it kept emerging over the course of my work, was that over time, it's a funny thing, chapters get longer. And I mean that like in an absolute sense over time, but also within certain kinds of books. And so to go back to my example of the Gospels, when you look at the division of those texts from the earliest moments, from the 3rd and 4th century, the chapters are quite short. I mean, some of the earliest versions of them will have chapters of no more than maybe 50 words. And they just grow over time. They're as if there's this like innate tendency, once you start dividing books into units, for those units to get bigger and bigger and bigger and, and, and more things to be crammed into them. And I've had that same result when I thought about the history of the novel. Same thing happens. Short chapters at the beginning to longer and longer and longer ones over time. And mm. I don't, it's hard for me to account for why that is, but there is that inevitable tendency. You know, and word counts are, I think, the most stable way to go about it, but it's not it's not the only way to think about it. And it's pretty clear that the chapter isn't just a matter of arranging words. It's also a visual fact, mm-hmm. right? It's about how pages are designed and where, not just where a break falls in a text, but what it looks like to a reader. And so I, I tried to give some attention to how that changes too. And Again, there, what you get is a kind of expansion just in terms of what the white space is, what that blank space is in a text. That, too, gets broader and broader over time. There's there's more like lavish white space mm. as you move forward in time. So, it, you know, it, I often think that a chapter is like a parasite. You know, it starts kind of clinging on to the outside of a text, like on the margins or and this very minimal thing in between passages of text. And then it just, it, it like sort of inserts itself and grows until it becomes indistinguishable from the organism itself. Right. It's so interesting that it get that they get longer because I would have thought in some ways that would be counterintuitive. It seems like as the world gets busier and busier, people have shorter and shorter attention spans and that they would be demanding shorter chapters. But on the other hand, I, I suppose... If you're looking at things in a over a longer period of time, you might be thinking, well, literacy was getting better. People were probably more comfortable reading and type was getting smaller and, and so on. And so they would feel like a 50-word a chapter. They weren't getting their money's worth. Right. And I mean, there are a lot of effects that are possible there, one of which is like paper gets cheaper. Mm-hmm. So uh, when that starts to happen, of course, you, you, you're not so anxious about filling paper with text as much. That's part of it. But I also, I think the main thing there is that the point of the chapter mutates from something like a kind of topical index more towards a way of organizing a rhythm of reading. Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to produce a chapter that's an index, you probably want shorter units, right? Because they become more useful as ways to locate yourself if they're shorter. However, once you start to think about a chapter as a way to organize a rhythm, then that rhythm becomes slower. It's a way of organizing your reading into these 
you know, something like whatever, an hour or an hour and a half of reading time. And that, of course, is going to involve a lot more text than if you're trying to produce a kind of index. You could also say that that, that starts to happen when you have the slow development of other ways of locating yourself in a text, like page numbers, for instance. That's a late development, the page number. Once that happens, you don't need chapters in the same way anymore. So the chapters right. can start to fulfill another function, which is much more rhythmic than, say, a page number, which just remains a another kind of locating device. Yeah. I mean, when I started reading on a Kindle, I would I was surprised that it would say, you know, you're 36% of the way finished or something. And I would think, well, that's that's crazy. That's not how I read. That's not how I think of it. But of course, that was how I was. I was just doing the math in my head. I'd say I'm on, you know, it's a 300 page book. Right. It's just that the Kindle is giving a number to it in a way that you didn't probably need before. Right. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Nicholas Dames. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So as you're putting together this project, I'm wondering... Did you look at books from all over the world or were you limiting yourself to books in English and or Western culture or how did you set boundaries around what you were looking at? I mean, I, I suppose, if not all over the world, a pretty wide amount of it. So mm -hmm. I did start in essentially the ancient Mediterranean and Middle East. But then I, I it begins to spread out from there. I, you know, take dips into 15th century France and London, and then to novels that were written in Russia and Brazil and Britain and the United States and even films, uh, French film. So I, I, I felt like I needed to go to a wide extent. I had to stop somewhere because it had to you know, remain one decently sized book. But mm -hmm. the reason I think I, I, you have to go as wide as possible is that the chapter is really a multinational phenomenon. I mean, the interesting thing about it the way I would put it is like it, the chapter is impervious to translation effects. A chapter break is a chapter break. It doesn't need to be translated. It just sticks, right? So the concepts of chaptering, like what a chapter looks like, can really spread easily across linguistic barriers or national or cultural borders because it just survives through translation without a problem. And uh, therefore, that you know, the the format of chapters can spread much more quickly, I think, than other kinds of literary devices that can be much more kind of locked into certain languages or certain genres. So yes, it, it's a multinational story, or as much as I could manage in a number of different languages. Mm. We see chapters in fiction and nonfiction, and you've mentioned the Bible. Religious works can have them. Are, are there any? key differences among these, or or do they kind of track one another depending on the era? Is it more era-specific, or is there any difference in what you noticed about chapters in the different types of works? I think sometimes there are weird feedback effects between different genres. So, for instance, the modern chaptering of the Bible, which starts in the 13th century, or really is done in the 13th century, those are still the biblical chapters we have. In the 18th century, there's a move to redo them again. 
because I mean, there's a lot of criticism you can read, uh, sometimes even in the prefaces to 18th century Bible, saying like, well, these are these don't make any sense. They, this, well, what what are these things? They you know, sometimes even as a famous example in the Book of John, a chapter break happens in the middle of a sentence. Hmm. And so uh, there is this move to say we need to we need to redo this and redo this more sensibly, because these chapters that come to us from the 13th century are really weird. And here's the ways in which they're weird or or even bad divisions of the text. I think what kind of happens actually is that the growing awareness of how weird they were filters into the work of novelists who are in some you know noticing this and thinking like, well, what if we thought about those breaks not as bad or flawed, but as kind of interesting, and you reproduce them in novels. So there's a lot of ways in which an older form of chaptering, an older way of organizing stories can be noticed by writers in other genres and then sort of used consciously, maybe for different reasons. So there's movement between different kinds of books, sometimes movement between something that was used for one purpose can be used for another, or something that was almost accidental can then become a conscious way of organizing a text. I always like that Kafka anecdote about famously said that you know, uh, leopards break into a temple and drink all the sacrificial vessels dry, and they keep doing it. And in the end, people start to calculate when the leopards are going to enter, and it becomes part of the ritual itself. And I sort of feel like that's how often change in the form of a chapter in, in, in the chapter happens, is that there's a kind of accidental effect that gets noticed and then turned into a norm, because it seems really interesting. It seems like, oh, that's that's something you can do something with and doesn't have to be just accidental. Do you have any examples of authors who seem to have really marked a shift in the way they treated uh, chapters, chapter headings, or or done something different that then gets followed? Or is it more like it's kind of hard to nail down exactly when shifts happen, but you just sort of see a, a general trend that starts to take place? Well, in some ways, it is a very general trend, but you can you can isolate moments where it does feel like somebody is noticing the general trend and is commenting on it and mm-hmm. making it visible. And, you know, one of the more famous writers, I think, to do this is uh, in the 18th century, the novelist Henry Fielding, who starts to multiply a lot of kind of metaphors for what a chapter does and even use those metaphors in his own novels. So famously in his novel, Tom Jones, he talks about chapters as uh, the work of a butcher, the way a butcher sort of chops up the meat in order to make the meat easier to carve and easier to consume. That's what a chapter is. It, it makes the text easier for you to consume. Or in his novel, Joseph Andrews, he talks about chapter titles. He, he says they're like inscriptions over the gates of inns that tell you what is what you're going to find inside, what there is to eat, what other kinds of entertainment there is inside. And if you don't like it, skip it and go to the next one. So that is marks a moment because what he's doing isn't just sort of noticing something about the way chapter titles and chapter breaks work. He's commenting on it in the text so that now you can kind of play around in this metafictional way with the very fact that the story is divided. And that starts a real sort of lineage in 18th century fiction where it's not enough to produce your novel in chapters. You have to be talking about the chapters, commenting on their existence as you go along, even playing with them, joking with the reader in various ways. And that that persists for quite a while, but it, it starts almost with fielding, I think. That's a good moment. And I think every time you see a more modern novelist doing this sort of thing, it's in one way or another traceable back to fielding. I like what you've been saying, because sometimes when we talk about metafiction, we think of an author who puts on their necktie and starts thinking about things in a theoretical way. And it's kind of a sterile exercise to subvert the norms of a genre or something. But actually what the effect is, is is a playfulness and a kind of wink at the reader or an elbow to the ribs or sort of a a way of connecting with the reader to say, you read books and I read books and we know how this is supposed to work. And this is what the the chapter or the chapter title is supposed to be like. But look at this. We're going to have fun with this. And we will. uh, I'm going to share something with you that shows that I get that you're kind of smarter than this. And so am I. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. Uh, one of my favorite moments like that is is in another uh, anonymously authored 18th century novel called The History of Charlotte Summers, where there's a scene where a housemaid is reading to her lady, and the housemaid asks, "So, where should I start? Did your ladyship turn down a, a you know corner of the page to tell you tell me where we stopped?" And the lady gets angry at her and says, "Of course not, you idiot! I that's what chapters are for." <laughs> So, you know, it's it's ugly to turn down the, the end of a page, like start with the seventh chapter. That's where we left off. That's exactly what chapters are for. And you think, OK, you know, I uh, that is, in fact, the novel is telling us, I know how you use this. You know, I know that how you use this. And we're we're communicating with each other in this sort of winking way about this thing that can seem really artificial. But it's a way of reminding you, no, it, it has a purpose. Mm. Okay, so as you're doing the research, what did anything surprise you along the way? Did you see any uses of chapters that you weren't expecting to find? So one of the things that I did find, which I suppose was a was a kind of surprise, is that I didn't expect to find the way in which chapters in novels starting, I would say, sometime in the 19th century, but persisting for a long time, are sort of sculpted according to the duration of one day mm. so that there becomes this sort of equation in novelistic chapters that they tend to start in the morning and end in the evening in the story. I expected more in the way of cliffhangers, right, of these kind of suspended endings that, that will keep you reading. Instead, it's really the opposite, that there's a multiplication of ways in which chapters end at nighttime and sometimes even end with characters in bed thinking about the events <laughs> of the chapter they've just experienced, mirroring what might be your own situation in bed reading, thinking yeah. about the book you're reading or your own day, and almost like directly aligning the reading pace that you might be on with the lived world of the characters. That was something I hadn't foreseen. And I think Bizarrely, although I'd you know really spent my career reading Victorian novels, I hadn't noticed it fully. It was something that I had I'd only registered if I'd registered it subconsciously, and there I was seeing it, and there were multiple ways to to chart that, and it stood out as like well that seems to have been this way in which the work the narrative work of the chapter is being understood at this moment, and it might have a relation to this sort of cultural expectation that develops within religious culture and had for a long time that, you know, your biblical reading habit should be one chapter a day. But that mutates into novels, and that's why we get, you know, what you referred to earlier is that habit that we still often have, right, of, you know, talking to your spouse when your spouse says, well, wait a minute, I've got a few more pages in this chapter, and, you know, and then I'll turn out the light or something like that, where the chapters really acknowledge it's like, this, it's the way you organize your reading and the way it aligns with the end of the day. So that was a surprise, this idea that a chapter is a day's time and how dominant that becomes in novels. Now, I don't know if you happen to find one, but I'm guessing that there was some author or other who probably also noticed that and felt that and probably resisted it a bit and, and poked some fun at it and had a, a, a day that was not quite ending or, you know, like a uh, a character who was trying to go to bed, but the chapter kept going on or, you know, some way of uh, playing with that expectation. Well, I, you know, one way that that expectation gets played with is... Um, it can be funny, but can also be quite the opposite. So in the book, I talk a bit about George Eliot's Middlemarch, and she does largely adhere to that form where a chapter is a single day's time. But when she doesn't, and when chapters don't end at the end of day, and in fact, then things begin to happen either late at night or characters don't sleep. Well, you know something's something's happening, and you know that what's happening is not good you know that these are crisis moments in people's lives. And that's when chapters in the book change their form. You don't have that peaceful moment of reflection. Even if it's a kind of troubled reflection, you don't have that moment of pause at the end of the day. Days sort of blur into each other. And those are hugely significant moments in someone's life when that happens in the novel. It throws your own reading pace off kilter. So there's, uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's a cliffhanger, but a sense that not, the chapters start to bleed into each other just the way days bleed into each other when you're not sleeping, when you have reason to be mm. up in the middle of the night. 
having a crisis. That's another way to think about that violation. And I think it's it's a, a, one of these intentional adjustments to the chapter a day rhythm that signals to you, here's a life in crisis because the days no longer make sense. Right. Oh, that makes so much sense. And I'm, I'm looking forward to my next read of Middlemarch and, and see if I can uh, sort of feel that rhythm taking over. You're exactly right that that is when you think about it, a uh, the ordinary days or the days of routine are the ones where we go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time and, and get a good night's sleep in between and kind of march through life that way are very different from the times where we're at the emergency room at two in the morning or, yeah. or you yeah. know, called out of town because somebody, a relative is sick or something and we're traveling and it's past midnight and, and it's all... Uh, Things have been upended in that way. Um, yeah. So writing a book called The Chapter, I have to ask, how did you organize your book? And did you feel any anxiety about finding the right structure for chapters, knowing that your readers were going to be probably more attuned to the chapters that you were selecting than any other readers have ever been in the history of literature. <laughs> I, I was very anxious about this, and I have to say that I, I uh, my initial version of the book, I had an idea that when I was talking about uh, what the chapter looked like at a particular historical moment, my chapters would be shaped like they were in that moment, and that quickly became impossible. <laughs> there was no way to do that, and and for the simple reason that. It's very hard to write anything that is, you know, uh, explanatory in super short formats the way they would have been in antiquity, right? It's, it, I can't really mm. explain a phenomenon in 200 words. Yeah. So I threw that idea out. Yeah. Well, you also would have had to include, uh, you know, a bronze tablet and a scroll. It would have been, <laughs> right. not, <laughs> would have, the That's book right. would have had to come in a lot of pieces. I mean, I wish I could have. I wish I could have done something like that, but it really just wasn't going to be practical. And so, in the end, I ended up having to kind of lean on a contemporary expectation of what a nonfiction book chapter is like, how long it is, what kinds of things it explains. I do a little bit of playing with chapter titles, in the sense that the titles of the chapters sort of do look a little bit more the way chapter titles did at the moment in time in which I'm talking about, that's about as far as I could go with mm. mimicking uh, how they looked. It's it's a funny thing because, in a way, I, I also realized that trying to write a book that played with the format of chapter almost ran against the grain of what chapters are, which is that there is something about chapters that are really just kind of conventional, and uh, they're not talked about very often. I never found in my research a moment, let's say in the 19th century, where you have an editor or a publisher saying, all right, here's what a chapter is. This is how mm. long it is. Mm -hmm. I was never able to find that smoking gun. And I realized that even when I was being trained in graduate school and after, no one ever said anything to me about that. It was just like you were supposed to pick it up through osmosis. And uh, because chapters are kind of conventional, they, they you can you can do things to them if you want, but you also don't have to. You can rely on everyone's collective sense of like, well, this is an appropriate size for something like this. We're used to this, right? And so I sort of ended up falling back on the conventional a little bit and organizing it chronologically. But that makes sense, I suppose. I mean, chapters, they don't have to be chronological, but they do exist in a series mm -hmm. and they give you a sense of time moving in a linear fashion from beginning to end. So uh, you could say, I guess I tried to be, I tried to be super eccentric about it and fall, fall back on the very reassuring conventionality of, of what a chapter is. I mean, in some ways, you could say that that's sort of the the great success of chapters, and one of the best qualities is that there wasn't some Aristotle who was saying a chapter must be two thousand words and no more and no less, and and it threw people off for centuries or something. That it it always had this feeling of it's there to be used, but it's going to be something that can can serve the purposes of the work and of the reader and the author, and it is not something we're going to try to define so carefully or precisely that we'll end up losing the benefits of the chapter, which is that it can replicate a rhythm that might match a life or might match uh, mm -hmm. some other passage of time that we recognize and that it it's useful. 
yeah, a chapter is not a sonnet, for instance. There, mm-hmm. there are really mm-hmm. no rules around it that you can you can look at it and say, well, that's not a that's not a right for a chapter, right? I mean, it, or it, at least those rules aren't very explicit, and so it's very very flexible, and as a result, really durable. And that is part of the reason it has stuck around. It does feel to me like its purposes are still as viable as they ever were. Mm. The book is called The Chapter, A Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century. Nicholas Dames, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. This was a pleasure. And finally today, let's hear from Hamid Dabashi, who is here to discuss the concept of the Persian prince. After he told us all about that, I asked him a special question. Okay, joining me now is Professor Hamid Dabashi, author of The Persian Prince, The Rise and Resurrection of an Imperial Archetype. Professor Dabashi, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. When I uh, heard that question initially, what would be my last book? I thought the last book that I would write, which mm. is a whole different yeah. uh, issue. But I would. <laughs> but the question is about what la- last book I would like to. I mean, we used to say we we used to be question what book would you take to that proverbial uh, island. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, it would be a book called Kilila Vadimna, mm. which uh, has a magnificent provenance. It begins in Sanskrit in two magnificent books. One is called Panchatantra. Mm. The other is Mahabharata, the uh, epic uh, of the Indian origin. But then what I like about this book is when it is translated into Pahlavi in the uh, uh, 6th century, and then from Pahlavi is translated into Arabic in the 8th century. And through its Arabic translation, and also an almost simultaneous Syriac translation, it just becomes a huge, goes viral, as we say. Uh, begins to be translated into Latin and to Hebrew and Persian and all the European languages, influences La Fontaine and, uh, and other uh, figures. What I like about this text, first of all, it is extremely fun to read. It's an animal fable. Mm-hmm. And you can read it to your own children. I used to tell the stories from this to my own children about, you know, uh, rabbit and lion and this and that. But at the same time, it's profoundly wise book and a book that can capture the imagination of young kids and remain interesting and important and exciting for adults to read and read from, I think is a glorious example of a book that I want to keep with me, whether uh, next to my sofa where I sleep or to that proverbial island or when I rush to meet my creator. Mm. Now, when you read that now as an adult, are you reading it? Are you finding new things in it or are you returning to a, a comfortable place that you remember from your own childhood and your own past? It's actually the former. It is mm. not, I don't have a nostalgia for it. I yeah. read it sometimes, and I read it in the multiple Persian translations. Not, uh, I mean, I occasionally go to the original Arabic, but there is no original. Everything is translated from something else. So uh, I have in my collection, I have the original Sanskrit. I don't read Sanskrit, so I read it in the English translation, but also the original Arabic, original Persian, French, etc. It is not a nostalgia for my childhood. It is actually, I read it out loud because every time I read it out loud in these two jackals, there is something wise and undetected and unrealized that I see in their behavior and their wisdom that interests me. And especially in uh, right now when many philosophers uh, have become interested in what they call post-human thinking, namely the significance of animal fables, in a context in which we are you know, thinking of the survival of our species, the book has assumed renewed significance to me out of its sheer multiplicities of meanings and significance that it still contains rather than any nostalgia. Though, though I don't dismiss nostalgia, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia. Mm. That is a beautiful response. Professor Dabashi, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack, for having me. My pleasure. 
So there we go. Not nostalgic, but something new every time. That feels very appropriate for this time of year. We remember the past, we treasure it, but we look to it not just because we want to become stuck in the past, but we want to feel something new. Nostalgia can be a kind of experience. Recalling the past with an old friend can be something to look forward to. But we can also use this year, 2023, to learn and grow and to look forward to the next. As Hamid describes it, the Panchatantra allows him to do just that. Here's another writer, novelist Salman Rushdie, describing his love for these stories. Quote, In India, I grew up with the Panchatantra, and when I find myself, as I do at this moment, in between writing projects, it is to these crafty, devious jackals and crows and their like that I return, to ask them what story I should tell next. So far, they have never let me down. Everything I need to know about goodness and its opposite about liberty and captivity and about conflict can be found in these stories. For love, I have to say, it is necessary to look elsewhere. End quote. So there we go, the Panchatantra. For everything to know about much of the world, and when it comes to love, maybe look elsewhere to Jane Austen or Graham Greene or Elizabeth Barrett Browning or Pablo Neruda or George Eliot. Thomas Hardy has a few hard-won things to say. And of course, Shakespeare hasn't yet exhausted himself, or us, either. So wake up, all ye interns. We've got books to read, and people to talk to, and things to learn, and lives to live to their fullest. And hey, a theme song to play. <laughs> Come on. Go. That's better. An old year ends, a new one begins, a touch of sadness, and a new round of excitement. I'm thankful to all of you for spending some of your past with me, or maybe I should say some of your presence, present, plural, some of your presence in the past, and I hope you join me for some of your presence in the future. That would be a nice present for me. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next year. <laughs>